Now it's on, so everybody is officially on. But anyway, I was letting you know we're not trying to grab anything we could use against anybody or anything of that nature, but he, we've been doing that for some time. Um, and there was, in studying for tonight, there was um, interest expressed in several directions, and we're a little bit diverse as a group, ranging from very young, such as Tim over there, to some of you going through college and some beyond. And one of the interests that was expressed was in the field of evidences from the standpoint of why we actually believe uh, the Bible is written by men who were inspired by God and believe in the deity of Christ from the standpoint of the actual evidence for it. And another interest was in uh, studying just certain things about the Christian life. And so what I'm trying to do then to blend it all together for this particular lesson is to look at the Bible from a standpoint of evidences but using the things that it says about a philosophy of life to do so. And to introduce it, uh, we'll mention a, a couple of avenues in evaluating the Bible and then go into the life uh, philosophy of life that's given as a third avenue and look at it from the standpoint of how you would evaluate it from a standpoint of evidence that it is written by people who were inspired. One avenue, in fact the way we began in looking at the Bible, if everybody would like to turn over quickly to Luke the first chapter and note uh, the approach uh, of the writer and, and the approach that should be used in, in study. Many points in evidences for the Bible are missed by individuals who approach it as some sort of a mystical book that has dropped out of heaven or, or you read the words and in some sense they're supposed to simply produce faith. And really that's not so. The Bible is actually written as any other book in the sense that it's, it's written uh, given its credentials and actually challenging uh, the individuals involved to check out uh, the credentials that, that are involved and making it clear that the information stands on evidence that you can examine it with your own God-given intelligence. Uh, look at the first three verses there of Luke uh, chapter 1. Uh, Chuck, would you read that please, that first three verses there? Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know that the certainty of the things have been taught. Okay, notice Luke uh, tells you very plainly that he's writing as a historian. And he says, these things have been undertaken. He said, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled. So he tells you, he's not the only one that's written about these events. Many, he uses the term many others that he was aware of. And he says, they've been handed down to us by those who were from eyewitnesses. And so Luke is telling you, he is not an eyewitness. But he says, this, this information that I'm going to write about uh, was given to me and I got it from eyewitnesses, and many others have also examined this information and have written on it. And then look at verse 3. It says, uh, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning 
it seemed good to me also to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. So you can see that being certain about what you were taught comes from being able to examine it and evaluate it. Notice when he says write an orderly account. Uh, what most scholars believe on that is that Matthew and Mark that were uh, by the agreement of all scholars that I'm aware of were written before Luke and that neither of them are orderly in the sense that they follow a perfect chronology. Uh, Matthew is written in topical order. Uh, Mark moves from event to event and it has a beginning and an end but the events are definitely not in order uh, as he goes through. Luke uh, actually gives you the material in chronological order. That's why when you study the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that you would use Luke as your basis because it is in chronological order and you can fit Matthew and Mark in there and get the chronology in which it was uttered. And so the information, Theophilus has been taught, but Luke now has given it to him in an orderly way that, that he can follow it and, and be certain about these things. All right, flip over here to the third chapter in uh, Luke. Third chapter, uh, first uh, three verses. First three verses there. Uh, Tony, would you read that, please? Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of, I don't know, and the of the region of something else and something else. The uh, that's fine. <laughs> that's wait, wait, good. Go ahead. Uh, not, so just go ahead. Well, no, actually, on any name that you come to, and that's fine, if you divide it up into syllables, your pronunciation would be as accurate as anybody else's because, the, uh, so like, for example, uh, I am from Louisville, Kentucky. But you could, an English pronunciation would be Louisville. Either would be accurate, uh, it, uh, depending on what background you're speaking from. And so really, you can divide any name up by its syllables, and you would be as accurate as, as anybody else. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Verse 13. Okay. I didn't mean to pick on you, Tony. No. <laughs> it wouldn't give you the worst part. Okay. <laughs> that is a good one. <laughs> okay, you want me to read three? Yeah, read on Yeah. What's that, Ananias? Annas? Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Annas and Caiaphas. Caiaphas, being the high priest, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, Zech right. in the wilderness. And he, came into, and he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of his sins. Okay. Again, notice how Luke writes. <laughs> This doesn't uh, say a long time ago, etc. It's in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, governor of Judea, Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip is Tetrarch of Atyria, and he names the places there and the individuals and even the high priest and the son, etc. In other words, Luke is writing information to Theophilus that can be challenged and examined. He's saying, I'm just not writing something to you. It's like saying, uh, Joe Brown, that lives on uh, 53rd Avenue, uh, building such and such, uh, apartment three, and his phone number is such and such. 
And this is the way that Luke writes the material. This is the way the whole Bible is written. And when you read the Old Testament, it'll identify something happening in the such and such year of a certain king. Suffice it to say, the material is written in such a way that, that you can examine it and challenge the material from a historical standpoint, and that's what Luke expected. And so when we began our examination of, of like evidences for the truthfulness of the account, you began just like you would anything else. That uh, uh, Recently, for example, in the past few weeks, there's been two renowned court cases that have been settled. One, the Mike Tyson uh, case where he was convicted as guilty, and the other is John Gotti of the Mafia. Okay? When uh, Mike Tyson was convicted of raping that young black girl, there wasn't a single solitary person on the jury who witnessed that or was anywhere near that building when the event happened. They evaluated the testimonies of both Tyson, the young lady, other people that were involved, uh, all the facts, and based on the evidence, they came to a conclusion. Uh, a few months before that, in the case with Kennedy down in Florida, a jury evaluated evidence and set him free. It wasn't, they didn't necessarily say that he didn't do it, but they were saying that there was not enough evidence so that they could be sure beyond any reasonable doubt. And in criminal cases, even if you think a person did something, you don't convict unless there's evidence beyond any reasonable doubt. That is, if you're following the law, you don't. And so what we see there is that we determine what we're going to believe based on the evaluation of the evidence. The stronger the evidence, the stronger the belief. And evidence can be so conclusive that you believe without a doubt in your mind. All right, John Gotti was recently convicted. Now, the first few times that John Gotti was trialed, tried, uh, he was set free. He was set free even though the people believed he was guilty. But he was set free because of the fact that the evidence they presented was not sufficient so that people were convinced beyond a reasonable doubt. This last time, they were convinced beyond a doubt, and so he was convicted. Okay, the Bible ought to be approached in the same way. Now, the importance of this... I don't think it's realized many times by people who have been brought up in the Christian faith because they have been taught it all their life. Uh, they have Some of the things we're going to talk about in the way of life, they have seen that way of life put to practice and work. They've read many things and they've been convinced for, for many reasons. But as a result of not looking at the information in that way, we, we live in a society that is becoming more and more pagan. Uh, a bigger and bigger percentage of our population in our country falls in the unbelief category. And although we living in the Bible Belt don't want to recognize this, the majority of the world does not believe the Bible and does not believe in the deity of Christ. And so the, a type of sermon in our society that may go over good and sound convincing to somebody that has been brought up something in something from his childhood, if you were to present that same sermon to a Muslim, or a Hindu, or an atheist, or an infidel, or an agnostic, it wouldn't go over at all. And, and so the, the Bible, and we'll deal with the New Testament here, was written to a group of people who were not brought up. Nobody, nobody here was brought up as a Christian. All of the disciples were first unbelievers. Thomas said, I won't believe until I can touch the place and, and see for myself. I absolutely refuse to believe you, is what Thomas said. Paul didn't believe until the evidence was overwhelming to Paul. 
So I'm saying the interesting thing is that although our approach in this Christian society has been to assume and take for granted the things that we ought to be proven, and then we complain that people don't believe it. In reality, the very book we're using was written to people who came to Christianity from the standpoint of skepticism and didn't believe it until every point was documented and proved to them. And so the first line, then, we're saying of evidence, and we're not going to get into this tonight, because that's, but other than to point out, is to approach it like you would any other historical work, whether you're studying Abraham Lincoln or anything, anything else. Examine the evidence. Examine the, the, the material itself. Was it actually written at that particular time? Has it been accurately transmitted? Uh, can we get a historical grip on this information? That's the way it cries out to be examined. Now, notice the next thing. Um, Look at verse 4. You're there in chapter 3 of Luke, so just we'll just continue on there. Look at verse 4 on down to verse uh, 6. 4 through verse uh, 6 there. Uh, Barbara, would you read that, please? Let's let Colin, because I can't. No, okay. Colin, you want to read that? Verses 4 through 6. As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, and the rough way smooth. And all mankind will see God's salvation. Okay. Notice what Luke is doing. He has given you a historical setting that you can examine. He's told you in the very beginning, the information comes from a plurality of eyewitnesses, and many people have already examined them and written on them, and, and now I'm writing on them. And now he's, he calls from Isaiah the prophet. And he quotes, and this passage is found in Isaiah, the 40th chapter, beginning with verse 3. All right, here's the claim of Luke. He's claiming that this Messiah that he's talking about was one that was spoken of by prophets that lived hundreds of years before. And that everything in the appearance of Jesus, in his ministry, the things that happened to him, and even the kingdom that he was going to set up was all talked. About. And so he begins with John the Baptist because John the Baptist introduced the Messiah. And then as he proceeds through, regularly when events happen, he will call us back to a prophet. All right, now Luke really doesn't put as much emphasis on that as Matthew because Luke is writing to a Gentile. Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience trying to convince them that Jesus was the Messiah. And so when you read Matthew, every paragraph just about is this happened to fulfill what the prophet said, this happened to fulfill what the prophet said. So the second line of evidence from the Bible standpoint is that this material was prophesied before it took place, and that, of course, would be an impossibility, except the people were guided as they claim by some source over and above human intelligence. And so, again, then it becomes, the burden now becomes, can you prove that those books were actually written in advance? In other words, uh, and, and I'm saying again, for somebody that's been brought up in the Christian church, it's fine to quote and say this is prophecy from Isaiah. If you haven't, then, uh, then my question to you as a Christian, if I'm an unbeliever, is prove to me that Isaiah was written in the 8th century B.C. And, and prove to me that these things historically happened in that way and that there's no explanation for this within the initial setting. And so again, that we, several thousand years this side of it, would have to have that information and then we can go ahead and, and compare the material, okay? So two lines of evidence is 
examining witnesses and the historicity of the material. Another is this miraculous nature of the Bible itself. Uh, prophecy, if it exists, it is a miracle in words. And, and that's the claim. And so the other is to, to examine for yourself. The writers constantly call on you to examine for yourself. Go get Isaiah. Go get Habakkuk. Go get Moses. You know, Look at what they said and compare it to what has historically happened. And that's the line of evidence number two. Now, the third line is really what we're going to look at tonight and base our study. We said that, that we was going to talk some about the Christian life itself. Remember the statement that uh, Peter made, in fact, hold your place here, and, well, you don't, we're through with that, so just flip over to uh, 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3, and uh, verses uh, 1 through uh, 4. Uh, let's see, uh, Jack, you want to read that, please? 1, one through 4. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husband, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Okay, now notice he speaks to the wife there, and he says that, uh, speaks to their husbands, and this is talking about wives who have unbelieving husbands, and it says, if any of them do not believe the word, that they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. Okay, remember uh, Jesus made the statement that uh, to let your light, speaking to his disciples, that you're the light of the world, you're the salt of the earth, and let them see your good works and glorify the Father in heaven. There is the assumption in these statements that man has the inherent ability to recognize right and wrong, good and bad. Well, no matter what his lifestyle, even though he may be a pagan or an unbeliever, there is the assumption in all the Bible, Genesis on through, that man is made in the image of God. And being in that image, he has a conscience and a sense of awe within him. And no matter what his background, how bad it is, he can identify with what is right when he sees it. Well, Peter calls on this. And he says that this pagan out here, who's not even a believer, that you can win him to this way of life by the way you live. In other words, there is the claim there that this philosophy of life is so obviously right that anybody can see it, that, it, that, it, that it's obvious. It, it, in other words, we might think of it like a, for an entire generation through all of my life, really, up until recently, uh, and I'm 52, we've had this big battle going on in the world in the Cold War, which in, in many ways was an economic battle. It was a battle between what is the best philosophy of economics, uh, capitalism uh, that thrives on free enterprise, or a communist system where the state owns everything and, and there is no free enterprise, the state controls. And so you had honest combatants on both sides, each believing their philosophy of government and economics was right, and each willing to sacrifice for it. 
Well, as it turned out, communism <laughs> lost, and it, and it didn't lose like we th sometimes thought that the war. We all used to think that it was that a war would settle it, but a war is not what settled it. Communism failed because communism didn't work, and and the people in the Eastern world, as they acquired TV sets and radio radios, and as they read publications. They constantly were made aware of how much more prosperous that the West was than, the, than, than those countries behind the Iron Curtain. And so they wanted some of that. And so as they became more and more convinced that their system was not as good, that it just simply wasn't working, discontent set in, and the communist world collapsed. And so it collapsed because it didn't work. Capitalism came out on top simply because, it, and we're not saying it's perfect, but obviously it works better than communism in, in providing goods and all for people from that standpoint. All right, in the same vein now, it is the claim of the Bible from Moses all the way through that this way of life is, is perfect and that not only does it work, any other attempt at life will be unsuccessful. And so obviously so that people really know that and therefore can be called accountable to it. And so we find statements like this. We find the statement by Jesus. And then the book we're going to look at uh, in a few moments is in Proverbs. Uh, what we have in Proverbs is an intelligent older man. In fact, uh, flip over here to look at... Uh, <coughs> Proverbs, the first chapter, notice the, the first statement there. Okay, Chuck, would you read that uh, first three verses, please? Chapter 1. Uh-huh. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for attaining wisdom and discipline, for understanding words of insight, for acquiring a disciplined and prudent life, doing what is right, just, and fair. Okay. What you have here, Proverbs is not something that the Holy Spirit dictated to Solomon or anybody else. In fact, it wouldn't have the same validity. The Holy Spirit wants it here, and that's why it's here. Solomon was, an extreme, was a wise man. He was given his intelligence by God, and, and he was given his experiences in his long life by God. And he was given the law of Moses that he studied and was brought up on. And so here is, in fact, we know, as we know about the life of Solomon, we know Solomon made many mistakes in his life and, and, and spent a big chunk of his life separated from God as a result of his mistakes. But what we have here is a man who's lived his life and he's observed it and he studied the law and he has broken the law. And he's observed people who have broke the law and people who have carried the law out. And from those experiences and the intelligence and the opportunities that God has given him come these observations of truths. What Solomon is saying here is based on my observation and experience, the law, he's going to wind up saying the law is absolutely perfect and it works. And so no better way for God to get this information across than to grant Solomon wisdom allow him to live his life and let him through his own experience see that the law of God is right not just because God says so but God says so because it's right 
and there's a big difference there, that the law is not arbitrarily right, that the law is inherently right. It just simply works. And so Solomon will make these observations that this way of law, and he will deal with every form of morality. Uh, there's no principle of, of morality in life, I don't think, that's not dealt with in Proverbs. But he deals with it from somebody who has the law here, and he's observing life, and he said, now this happens when you break this law, and he tells you, and this happens when you do it, and then he simply makes that observation. Okay, now, one of the great evidences all through the centuries of the millions and millions of people who have come to respect and believe the Bible was the fact that as they read this material and they compared it with their own experiences and their own observations, they found themselves constantly saying, this is right, this is right, that's right. It's, it's like when you read the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I know my, I can still remember the, the first experiences of hearing the Sermon on the Mount preached on, and even though it stepped on my toes, I found myself inwardly agreeing with the material and saying, that's right. I mean, what, what, what you're really saying is your own observation, your own experience has said, yes, you know, overcoming evil with good is not easy. We, we, don't, we don't always do it. Maybe most of the time we don't even attempt to do it. But deep down in our heart, we've had enough experiences with war and hatred and bitterness and fighting that we know in the final analysis, it, it's the only, if it's ever overcome, that's the only way it'll ever be overcome. Uh, that, you, that, that fighting just simply breeds more fighting, just as Jesus said, those that use the sword will perish with the sword. And so we find all these principles then as one that rings truth to our experience with life. And although they may not have called it evidences, this is one of the great things that all through the years and older people who don't know anything about archaeology or haven't studied historical records or languages or anything, they experienced life and they read the Bible and they found themselves inwardly saying over and over, I know that's right. And not only that, uh, children have grown up in Christian families. Uh, they've seen people put those into practice and they've seen that it works. And so it's evidence for them. But keep in mind, for the unbeliever out here now that's not been brought up in that surrounding, that cannot become a form of evidence to him until he has the opportunity to see it and evaluate it and somebody helps him to interpret the information itself. Uh, now, before we go on and get into this on the, the morality in the Bible as a form of evidence for the inspiration of the Bible, anybody have any observations you'd like to make? Any comments or observations, questions? Um, I was always a question that my, I don't know, it's kind of like I would come, I came here and, and studied Christian evidences for the first time, you know, a few years back, and I had never heard of anything like that before, but uh, and it's sort of like my parents have never really studied that, but yet they're faithful Christians, you know, and it's like, you know, they don't have any problem with not studying languages or archaeology or anything like that, but even though that all is good, that <clears throat> it's always been, it's like you're saying, it's just something you can identify with as being right, the morality and, the, and how you treat other people, and it's just, it's just the right thing to do, and, and I guess that that's... Yeah, and you're, even though they didn't call it evidences, it, really it was. was. Yeah, right. It may not, in other words, you can just keep going and going and going in the realm of evidence, and it, it was. In other words, for example, if when your parents were reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they noticed some glaring contradictions. 
right away they would have had, their mind would have had problems with that. But what they noticed was harmony. In other words, if they saw a personality of Jesus in Luke that differed from a personality of Jesus in John, then there would have been real problems. Or if Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John had portrayed Jesus on the one hand as the Son of God, but they portrayed a personality in Jesus that was different than the God of the Old Testament. They would have had problems. In other words, that we often talk of the New Testament like it's you know so tremendously different. But from the standpoint of law, the, the God of the, when Jesus taught to love your neighbor as yourself, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, love God with all your heart and mind. No, he's really quoting the Old Testament. That that's uh, that was a, so we they we see the same personality that we that we actually see over there. So I'm saying even though they didn't call it that. You know, it, it, it really was. But still, if they were going to sit down and study with somebody who did not have a Christian background, then that would motivate them uh, to want to study uh, some of the other things, you know, to, to, to go into the actual, because then you'd have to get back into the authenticity of the manuscripts and all that kind of thing. But they definitely, their background didn't, didn't call for that. Uh, another thing, even with you and I as individuals, when somebody tells you something, even before you examine and challenge that information in other ways, I would suggest to you the first approach that your mind makes to it is whether or not it's logical, whether or not it sounds logical to your mind. If it sounds illogical, there's a tendency to, to reject it right away, even without examining it, if it sounds illogical to you. But if it sounds logical, there's a tendency to think it could be even before you began to examine it. Okay, think of the, the concept in the Bible of man uh, being made perfect and then sinning and then uh, the consequence of sin and then God sending his son and, and God himself clothing himself with human flesh as God incarnate and God giving himself as a sacrifice for sin and making it possible that man can can have remission of sins in him. Well, then you go back and you examine that even before the evidence. Is all of that logical? See that, uh, uh, is it logical that God, who put us here in a fleshly body, would come and dwell in flesh himself in the same way he's asked us to and, and demonstrate his own law? I mean, is that illogical? Well, to my mind, that's... That's logical. That uh, it's, it's like a father showing the son, and he says, here, I'm going to show you how to do it. You know, I've told you how, and now I'm going to show you, show you how. And so God, through Moses, tells us how, and then through Jesus, he shows us uh, the law itself. And then when you look at the world, and you say, well, man, this, this, this world is not very pleasant many times, but then you ask yourself, well, why isn't it very pleasant? And every unpleasant thing you can think of in this world is something the Bible calls sin. I mean, what if, what if everybody in the world really respected the law that's set forth in the Bible? You see, and so you, so then you, you began to look at that and say, well, hey, that's that's right. You know, that we, we wouldn't we wouldn't need any armies or prisons or anything if we all lived by those principles. But then the next step is is it uh, is it logical? that God would pay the price for our sin and love us to that extent. Well, then you ask yourself the question, would a father or a parent be willing to forgive a child 
who was repentive of whatever mistakes they had made and pay the price for whatever debt that was incurred. And, and, and so our experience then, it says, yes, that's perfect. In fact, would it be logical to do otherwise? And so I'm saying that, again, they don't call that evidence, but every step of the way, the material is logical to their mind. And, and it's no accident that God reveals himself as Father, that uh, that would have no meaning to us if you did not have uh, a father on this earth and have that experience. It's no accident that God reveals himself as son and a father giving up his son. It's through that relationship that we have that we can identify with those feelings and all and, and, other, and understand what he's trying to get across. I mean, Jesus is not literally the son of God. From our standpoint, he is. But, but he, there is something that because of a relationship that God has given us that can be shown to us through those relationships in the, in the revelation itself. And so in any way we look at that, everything about it seems to fit and is perfectly logical uh, to the mind. And so I believe, Mark, on that, that, that all of these people that believe, even though they haven't studied archaeology or language or anything like that, uh, you know, I think a lot of them definitely do, you know, based on those things. They haven't called evidence, but it, it, really, it really was. Uh, was you going to say something? I thought somebody. Um, no, a while ago, when you were talking about the fact that it got played before, he says in Proverbs, but whoever fails to find me harms himself. Right. That's, what what proverb was that? Proverbs 8. Okay. I can't hardly see this. Third, the last verse, 36. Mm -hmm. well, there's another good, good one that goes along with that also. I don't Nineteen three, I've always liked. At least in the New International, it says a man's own folly ruins his life. Yet his heart good. rages against the Lord. That's great. Yeah. That's good. I was going to ask him if you remembered oh. where that one was found. Uh, that's one of my favorites. Of the before, Mark. Uh, look at our own society that is really a pagan society, and think about all the people in in jail. Uh, are they there for doing anything the Bible calls right? Are they there for everything? Uh, Mike Tyson, if he had lived in the days of the law of Moses, if he actually did that in the way it was purported, uh, would have been killed. Uh, rape in the Old Testament demanded the death penalty. It was that serious. Uh, the people say all sins are alike. Sometimes they're not. Uh, everything didn't demand. If you stole something, you had to pay him back something plus. That's the, that was the penalty in the Old Testament. Pay the person back plus some amount. But rape or murder, either one, was punishable with the, with the death penalty. And so, and we look and we see that, uh, that those particular things that were punishable with the death penalty were the type of crimes that if people practice, society cannot exist. You, you, you just simply could not exist as a society if, if those kinds of things are accepted and, and right. And so we find ourselves... Uh, looking at that, and now here's an interesting thing from a standpoint of evidence. Because once you show the rightness of this, that still doesn't necessarily prove that it's inspired of God. That in and of itself wouldn't do it because, just like we said, Solomon, based on his observation, has, has said that this particular law works and everything like that. But what it does, when we compare it, to all other works, all through history. In other words, of everything in the way of philosophy, we can take our mind to uh, think of the Greek, Greek philosophers 
Socrates, uh, Socrates was a homosexual. Uh, even Plato was a little embarrassed at it. Uh, Plato, uh, Aristotle, all these great philosophers, their uh, idealism, uh, hedonism, uh, ex the, today's philosophy is existentialism. Well, we can look at all these philosophies, and this is what the material outside the Bible has given mankind to live by. They've said, choose it. Choose hedonism, or choose existentialism, or, or choose idealism and everything. But the reason that no one of them have caught on is, why do you think? That there's no one of them that, that is really caught on to the extent that it could capture the majority of mankind and hold it. Doesn't they don't work? The thing is, <clears throat> you think about the uh, philosophy of uh, Darwin and Huxley and Nices and, and people like that, and uh, and their philosophy where with Darwin talking about man just an evolution of a lower being, and then there would be no law mm -hmm. basically, and, and it's just kill whoever you want. But even though they even they didn't practice what they preached. It is in like Hitler came really, really close. Okay. Stalin or something like that. So. Uh, the book that you read, John, on uh, the atheist syndrome yeah. was uh, good on that. He pointed out that uh, really uh, some of these people like Darwin did not pursue their philosophy to its logical conclusion. If man has evolved uh, as a chance and is not created by God, is there a Anything you can say is right or wrong. Uh, if man has evolved by chance, can you say that he is any superior to an ape other than the fact he's smarter? Well, do we have any problem with killing cows and eating them? Uh, if the population of apes get too high in any area, do we have any problem uh, shooting some of the population? Uh, do we have any problem putting apes in... Uh, in bars and zoos, we don't have any problem. Why not? Because we, we, well, then if we don't, what would be the difference in doing the same thing with human beings? When, when we deal with animals, do we breed animals in an equal way or do we take a top specimen and, and breed to get other top specimens? Well, then if that's right with animals, why wouldn't it be right with people? So Hitler, as John said, Hitler took Darwin's uh, position and the whole evolutionary position. And he pursued it to its logical conclusion that they did not. They didn't go that far. But he and Hitler was actually consistent with their conclusion that that there is no atheist that can look at Hitler and say that he was illogical. Because if atheism is true, then Hitler's idea of breeding a master race or stamping out the weak uh, uh, has has merit. If you want to if you want to look at it from that standpoint, and and you cannot come along and and there was only one way. Here's an interesting thing. How can you call uh, Hitler a bad person other than from a biblical standpoint? I don't know how you can. By what standard? All right, now what is happening in our own society today? We have thrown the Bible out as a society now. We've thrown it out. But now what's the problem? What are we replacing it? Where is any standard we're going to replace it with? Oh, relative. Okay, there is no standard. And so that's the problem we've run into in our country. We've, we've thrown it out, but then you, you've got to have a standard. And so what happens, 
we cannot come up with laws that everybody will agree to. And so the end result is that homosexuality and lesbianism is an alternate lifestyle. Uh, but, but then the very people that want to argue for that will read about somebody that's having relations with their own children or with small children and they call that perversion. Well, how can they do that? By what standard is that perversion? Uh, it, it, it's no more, I mean, the, it, the, the very homosexual or lesbian that wants to be accepted will, will look down many and say, we agree with you that this is perversion. By what standard is it perversion? I mean, if, if we're a bunch of animals anyway, why does it really, why does it really matter uh, one, one way or the other? I just have a question. I don't know. We've talked some about in the study before on like you can look at the creation itself and see evidences of the existence of God. And uh, I just think about this: <clears throat> human beings, I believe, go beyond what the animals do. How many homosexual animals do you know of? I mean, I, I, that's I really I've thought about that. I thought, gee, are there any homosexual animals around? It doesn't make any sense. And it's like, but yet you have human beings who engage in that. Or, you know, they'll rape small children or, do, you know, whatever. Yeah. They do ridiculous things that, that you wouldn't even consider an animal. It's sort of like a dog. It's so faithful. A human being can learn a lot from a dog, a good dog, you know, man's best friend or whatever they call it. Mm. And, I, I mean, I don't know. I think that's, it's kind of on the sideline, but since you brought it up about Darwin and all, even the animals operate by a standard that God has put on them. And... It's like they don't deviate like we do. We have free choice to deviate and do these crazy things. And but the animals, they, they op, yeah, they're stand, but re in reality, the only standard of an animal is his own flesh. In other words, a, a big dog has no problem whatsoever taking a bone away from a little dog. His conscience doesn't seem to bother him a bit. You know, he doesn't lose any sleep over it or anything, seemingly, you know. And so they, they, but the interesting thing about us is, and see, this is our problem when we throw God out and all, we have problems with our conscience. When we do something that we perceive as being wrong, we suffer something called guilt, and we can't get away from it. And it sends us to the insane asylum, and it causes us to break out in little bumps, and it'll give us headaches, and it'll give us digestive problems, and it'll give us heart problems, uh, that, uh, that we have all kinds of psychosomatic problems sometimes because we can't get our lifestyle and our belief structure to agree. Well, we're unique in that. Well, all of that, uh, the, the proverb writer would give as evidence that you're made in the image of God. And so that, like uh, here in Proverbs, look here at verse uh, 1, verse 7, chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. All right, now read fear in the biblical sense as fear from the standpoint of, of reverence and respect. Uh, in other words, he's true to his you reverence and respect. He says to the proverb writer that uh, it is the beginning of knowledge. Okay, now think of what Paul said in Romans when he deals with the state of mankind when Jesus hit this earth. And he talks about men lusting after men and women lusting after women and all kinds of other acts. And then he gives a reason for it. He says because they have rejected God. They have chose to reject the knowledge of God. But he says they have no, no excuse for this. First of all, he deals with God's existence. And he says the invisible God is declared by the things that are so that man is without excuse. And Paul says, you know something doesn't come from nothing. 
uh, that you're without excuse. And you know that for every effect there's a cause and that the, the, the uh, cause has to be equal to or greater than the effect. That's what Paul's saying, just like David when he said, the heavens declare the glory of God and affirm it is handed. So Paul says, you've got no excuse for rejecting God. Then he comes on down and, and Paul says that the Gentile is guilty even though he didn't have the law of Moses because he has a conscience. And he said he stood condemned in and of his own conscience and that many Gentiles in and of their own inner nature did the things of the law even though they didn't read it. So what Paul is saying is the beginning of wisdom so far as conducting your life begins with the acknowledgement that you're made in the image of God and that all morality springs from that acknowledgement. And then you have a conscience. And to have a contented and successful and happy life, you have to live within the realms of that conscience and with the recognition of your, of your creator. So Solomon has recognized that. David was so plain as to say the fool has said there is no God. In other words, from David's standpoint, the, the evidence was so conclusive that he would simply say that only a fool would, would deny God. Okay, now, in this, in Proverbs, notice how he proceeds. Let's choose, uh, let's see, uh, look at uh, chapter 3. Uh, a few examples there. Uh, let's see, Mark, we'll start with you and then just read on across there. With that third chapter and... Uh, 